Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Listening to Drew Dellinger's poetry regularly gives me goosebumps. Very shortly, it'll give you goosebumps too. He's a US-based writer, poet, speaker, and teacher whose passions revolve around ecology, social justice, cosmology, social change, and transformation. He uses arts activism to build movements, such as Planetize the Movement, which he founded. He's fascinated by the big stories that operate in our culture and the power of arts, education and activism. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and is a deeply thoughtful and powerfully eloquent man. It was my great honour that he gave me an hour of his time to talk imagination, an hour that I found moving, inspiring and deeply thought-provoking. You're going to love this one. I started by asking him what, for him, is imagination. When he thinks of the word imagination, what does it bring up for him? A couple of things that uh, come to mind when I think of imagination. One is that it's about, it has some quality of novelty to us, to it. Imagination, ad, imagination has some quality of novelty to it. And in the sense that it's about bringing forth something that hasn't existed before or hasn't existed in quite that way or combining two previously existing elements into a third and different thing that's never existed. So I think of imagination as somehow bringing in novelty, bringing in new forms, bringing in new uh, connections um, that previously hadn't existed in the universe. And that kind of brings me to the second way that I think about imagination is that I think of imagination in cosmological terms. I think of because if we live in an interconnected universe, then, you know, then there's ultimately not going to be a clear and uh, defined separation between human imagination and planetary or Gaian imagination and galactic imagination and the imagination of the cosmos. So if we if we take this idea seriously that this is an interpenetrated, interrelated, interconnected cosmos, then create there's going to be interconnections with creativity. We are connected to the creativity of the galaxies. We are a manifestation of the creativity of the solar system, of the cosmos itself, of the planet. So I think when we talk about something like creativity and imagination, we're talking about some of the deepest dynamics of the universe itself. I mean, we take a universe that started as hydrogen and then can unfurl in such a way that there are 20 million different species in the Amazon rainforest. I mean, to go from hydrogen to helium is an incredible accomplishment, but to go from hydrogen to 20 million or more differentiated species in the Amazon rainforest, 7 billion people, each with their own uh, experiences and creativity and imaginations. Um, and so the universe unfolds toward creativity. I mean, that's just a scientific fact. Um, it started as hydrogen. Now we have all these elements, all of these planets, all of these nebulae, all of these solar systems, all of these galaxies, all of these species, all of these hopes and dreams and aspirations and imaginations of various people. So there's no uh, question as to whether the universe is creative. The universe is creative. It unfolds. That's not some new agey interpretation. That's the straight science. The universe unfolds in a creative way. It unfolds in terms of novelty and new forms coming into existence. So 
when we engage our uh, human creativity, we're tapping into the deepest dynamics of the cosmos itself and getting at the deepest uh, layers of who we are. So who are we? What are we? We are creativity. What is the cosmos? The cosmos is creativity. So when we are, are engaged in imagination, I mean, my teacher Thomas Berry used to talk about the universe, the earth is a dream process. You know, it's guided by some kind of dream vision, some dream process of, of a planet that four billion years ago was a boiling orb of molten lava and and now you know and then can unfold towards Jimi hendrix and nina simone and uh and these great you know uh, exemplars of human creativity i mean that all came from a boiling orb of lava four billion years ago so the the planet is imagination the planet is creativity the galaxies and the stars and the cosmos are imagination and creativity and so when we uh tap into the most creative uh, dimensions of ourselves. We're tapping into some of the deepest dynamics of the universe itself. Beautiful. As somebody who, who spends a lot of time going around and meeting people and interacting with the world, I wonder how you would assess the state of health of our collective imagination in 2018. I think it's pretty rough out there, just in terms of uh, the economic, social, and political systems that were uh, enmeshed in and uh, embroiled in. And it's hard to speak um, very generally because there's so many different cultural contexts and national contexts and different situations in terms of, you know, class and, uh, uh, and, and economics and these sorts of things. So, but I do think that there is... Um, one of the things that I notice a lot is that I think that most people want to engage their creativity and their imagination on a deeper level than they have been able to uh, up till now. And so I, I think that there's very few people that feel fully actualized in terms of their creativity and their imagination. I think that there are a lot of people uh, who are professional artists or creative in, in their work in various ways. and, and But... I think most people, you know, there's this kind of myth of, uh, or this idea of like, oh, if when I retire, then I'm going to write a book, you know, and this sort of thing. It's, you know, it's like creativity is something that other people who have more time for leisure activities are able to engage in, but I've got to be at my work, my job, you know, all day, every day, and then I'm knackered when I get home. And, or, or, uh, you know, creativity is something for other people, or creativity is something that maybe I could indulge in when I was older and, you know, this sort of thing. So I think we have, there's a lot of, uh, there's a gap, I guess I should say, a chasm between, uh, for a lot of folks, between with their aspirations and inclinations toward creativity and what they're able, actually able to engage in. Uh, and, and I think that that's really important because I think key creativity is one of the keys to human happiness. I think there's a way in which um, people are often most happy and most fulfilled and most present when they are engaged in a creative or an imaginative or an artistic or a playful kind of uh, activity. And so I think if we're going to think about how do we... Um, how do we transition our society into where there's less ecological destruction, more happiness? You know, I think part of we get into the I think if we had more creativity, 
we could have less consumerism. If we had more imagination, we could have less capitalism. I think there are ways in which capitalism and consumerism becomes a, uh, a pale imitation of creativity. I'm going to go out and make some creative choices in the shopping mall that reinforce my unique sense of uh, self-identity. And, and I think most people uh, would rather be engaged in a truly creative or imaginative, artistic or playful uh, process that engages them to be present and in the moment and appropriately challenged without being overwhelmed. Um, you know, that's the kind of experiences that we're looking for. So I think we're looking for experiences of creativity, of celebration, of connection, of community, but uh, but what we're offered instead is the the pale imitation of uh, experiences of consumerism, experiences of capitalism. One of the things that I've been doing a lot of reading around is the rise of smartphones, of social media, and the the damaging impact that that is having on our attention, our ability to concentrate on our attention spans, our ability to focus. I wonder what you would see as the implications of this and how you as a poet and an imaginative, creative person observe and manage those impacts. I think it's a huge issue and we're only beginning to to understand what what we're doing to ourselves and to our minds. Uh, You know, we don't have, there is no... There's no data uh, for what for this type of experiment where you have millions and uh, you know a billion or two people around the world uh, all all looking uh, you know are, since the rise of smartphones our, our internet consumption patterns have changed dramatically and I think it's very concerning I think we don't even we can't even begin to know what the effects are going to be I think it's taken a major toll on our attention spans collectively on my attention span personally um i do you know i'm on twitter and i you know and i I feel the pull of the smartphone and wanting to see what what's the latest news is and i think uh i think that there's a way in which that type of short attention span is is the absolute uh, is, is anathema to to creativity and imagination imagination can come in a flash of insight, but it's, uh, you know, that flash of insight uh, occurs in a field, uh, you know, that's been prepared and that, you know, and, the, and that and the preparation for that field is oftentimes solitude, is quiet, is reflection, is contemplation. And so there's this, uh, and when, so are my, and, and again, when I was speaking earlier and I said that when we're talking about our imagination where that's connected to the cosmos that's connected to the planet you know these are the voices of the cosmos and the planet are are persistent and powerful but they can be overwhelmed by the voices of technology and the voices of society and the voices of you know the the daily you know din of of activity uh and noise and clutter if you will uh mentally and psychically and uh, the deepest uh, impulses of our creativity arise from our unconscious mind. And that's a lot of the power of creativity is linking the unconscious mind to the conscious mind. And uh, we can't hear the deepest stirrings of our soul. We can't respond to the uh, most subtle voices 
of our psyche and our soul and our unconscious when we're constantly being titillated and distracted. And so I think there is uh, kind of a time-honored connection between having a little bit of psychic and mental and kind of soulful spiritual space um, and those moments of, uh, of creativity that happen. Uh, you know, they can be flashes of insight or it can be a slow process, but it's e the easiest thing in the world is to get distracted um, from these deep impulses of creativity and imagination. And I think we need a little boredom. You know, we need a little fallow time. We need a little downtime, if you will, uh, to let the imagination begin to weave its magic. And I think it's just kind of impossible when we're constantly being, okay, I've got to email. Okay, I've got to be on this call. Okay, I've got to check my phone. Okay, I've got to run an errand. You know, it's, uh, I think there's a, it's a real issue. I think we need to. And I think this internet addiction is a major issue that we're going to have to deal with moving forward. And we're not getting the same quality or depth of work uh, if we just live in this world of, well, here's my latest hot take. Here's the tweet that I dashed off. I took a little time and I made a whole blog post, you know, that I spent uh, this morning writing. But where's the where's the 10 year research project? Where's the book that took someone 15 years to write? Where's the collection of essays that is a summation of 30, 40 years of a scholar's experience uh, or a, a person's uh, background and experience? So I think we're living in a world where, uh, for, and, and there's different, as someone had said recently, uh, you know, it's incentivized, the, you know, the, this kind of hot take, dash off a tweet, put up a blog post, you know, um, it, uh, this kind of world that we're living in, it, it, you get incentivized because you get the little dopamine rush when people retweet your tweet or like your Facebook post, but you're not getting the, that kind of same incentive when you're alone spending 12 years researching a book project. So I think losing some of the depth and some of the quality that comes um, from intense and prolonged uh, engagement with our creativity and our imagination. Yeah, the where's the trout mask replica of uh, of today? Yeah, I was thinking about the other day. You know, if if William Wordsworth and his sister had been walking past those daffodils, uh, checking their Facebook feeds and taking selfies, they'd have just walked straight past, and that whole moment of seeing it would have been lost. Um, one of the uh, one of the causes, like I mentioned before, that the woman who published that initial study talked about was the decline of play of that sort of unstructured free uh that kind of free play how does poetry the connection between poetry and play so when 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 you're in the space of creating poetry how is is that is that like play what does that have in common with play well we have this phrase word play you know and, and so i think of the poetry is word play in a lot of ways and um i do think that it's the it's the same that it's got a lot of the same dynamics as play in the sense that it's not goal-oriented necessarily. It's not uh, instrumental, you know. It's not like I'm writing this poem so that I can get accolades and then I can, you know, and then people, I can get some income. You know, number one, you're not going to get much income as a poet. You may get an accolade or two. But you see, it's not, that's again, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's intrinsically rewarding. That's what, you know, if we talk about uh, 
the kind of a perspective of the, the author of the book Flow. You know, we're looking for these flow experiences so often. We're looking for things that are intrinsically rewarding. And so much of our society, and so that then becomes a revolutionary proposition in a society that's structured around extrinsic rewards. You go to school and, and bore yourself to tears and stuff your body into this desk, you know, for eight hours a day so that you can be a success, so that you can go to university and you do that so that you can get a job, so that you can, uh, you know, get an income and, and, and uh, provide for yourself and your family. You know, so it's all of these do these painful and kind of mentally debilitating, uh, you know, and boring and, and just things that feel meaningless so that you get, you know, it's that kind of extrinsic reward. So that's a completely different orientation than being in the moment, being spontaneous, being present, you know, which is what so much of all spiritual experience and spiritual tradition is about, being fully present in the moment with what, whatever's happening. And so this is what some of the rewards that creativity and play offer us. It's not about, you don't, you don't play so that you can get a gold star from the teacher on how well you play. You know, you engage in poetry because you have some uh, a sense of attraction to the juiciness of words and to the levels uh, of and, and charge that you can give when you put different words in combination together. So you're creating these sparks and you're creating, you know, these ripples. And, uh, and you're doing it because there's something to communicate. There's something to express. I think of uh, poetry more as communication than self-expression. I mean, we kind of have this, this idea that the arts are about self-expression. And I think there's some of that. But I think they're really about connection. And they're about communication. And, and you engage in these things. So you engage in a, a kind of a delightful process. You know, it may be the content of the poem may be um, very dark or, you know, about some of the shadow sides of, of human experience. But there's still a delight uh, in being able to put those experiences into words, to be able to create something new that's never existed. Um, and so there's a, you know, there's a power in naming our experience, and there's a power in, in sharing a story. And uh, even if it's a poem that's you know very abstract and you can't quite understand it, there's a level of delight in that. And so. Yeah, there's something very spiritual about <laughs> doing things that are intrinsically rewarding. You know, and I, I run in progressive circles and we say, uh, you know, and, uh, and so it's kind of like, you know, and we have a lot of sports culture here in the United States. And so it's a big thing and it's all hyper capitalist and it's hyper masculine and it's hyper competitive. And so it's not considered, you know, progressive to uh, to be too into sports. Um, but when we really think, you know, I remember when the Olympics, you know, were happening a, a couple of summers ago. And I remember I, I posted something about, you know, the Olympics. And then somebody said, oh, well, that's not very, you know, progressive or whatever. And I said, you know what? I actually think about, yes, the, the way the sports culture is set up in this capitalistic system is very problematic, you know, and there's too much money and too much attention and too much focus and all this stuff. But when you think about what sports is, I mean, that's the kind of thing that humans should be involved in. I think I, when I think of the future and I think of, you know, we don't, the, the, we're trying to restore the biosphere rather than pull down 
all of the last ecosystems on the planet. And, you know, there's a, you know, and we need something like a universal basic income, you know, or something like that. You know, human beings are still going to need meaningful activities, delightful activities, important activities. And, you know, I, I envision a future where, that looks like, you know, the Olympics meets Woodstock, you know, where it's humans engaged in activities, you know, to, to challenge themselves and to, you know, and to engage in the process of cultivating their own excellence. But, yeah, we need more arts. We need more sports, you know, and activities, you know, not necessarily hyper-capitalist, hyper-competitive, but human beings need things that, that help them grow and challenge their skills and develop their skills. And we need mental, you know, uh, activities and we need spiritual activities and we need physical activities and we need, you know, artistic activities that are all a combination of those. So while my vision of humanity is, you know, is where we have our basic needs taken care of uh, in a, in a self-sustaining you know, bio system, and we can engage in sports and creativity and philosophy and the arts of connection making and community and society. And so I think sports like creativity are things that we engage in because they're intrinsically rewarding. You might have answered my next question, but you might want to. So, so a question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed as part of this has was if it had been Drew Dellinger, who had been elected two years ago as the president of the US, and you had run on a platform of Make America Imaginative Again, and you had set out with this idea that there needed to be, rather than having a national innovation strategy, which every government does, we needed a national imagination strategy that said we need imagination back at the heart of education at the heart of public life, of policy making, of family life, of, of, of how everything works, uh, and you had been elected, I wonder what you might, where might you start, what might you do in your first hundred days as President Dellinger? One of the first things that I would do is I would kick the corporations uh, out of the universities, and I would kick the military uh, contractors out of the universities. Because I think there's just a fundamental conflict of interest when we've got these corporate interests and these military um, interests directing so much of the money and the funding and the research in our universities. And to me, that's, that's a violation of the spirit of, of what learning is about, what a university is about. As uh, one of my friends, Matthew Fox, you know, is fond of, of pointing out, university originally meant a place that one goes to find his or her place in the universe. And so to me, the university, I, I know that this is kind of idealistic, but I still cling to this, to this uh, notion that the universities are one of the last places that should be free from capitalist uh, political um, influence, you know, such that, uh, and so I, I think of learning as sacred. And so I think of school as sacred. I think of universities. I know you all use different terms, you know, for college and university than we do. But I think of higher education as sacred. And so it's, it's a supreme blasphemy to me that we have pharmaceutical companies and defense contractors and other corporate interests who are in large part dictating you know, the directions of our university. So I think we, if we kick out the, the military, we kick out the corporations, then we could begin to um, 
reconnect to the original mission and purpose of universities, which is almost a, a, a place set aside, not set aside, but insulated from the other um, competing interests of our, of our social life so that we maintain this place, this sacred space for creativity and imagination. And I think a scholarship at its best has a lot to do with creativity and imagination. You know, there's this kind of reputation that academics are dry and, and boring. And, and we all know that there's good reasons for that. And academic writing, you know, is, is, is can be, you know, just deathly to read. But uh, academic work at its best is about connection making, is about uh, imagination, is about creative breakthroughs. And so, you know, I think we obviously need, we, there's so many different ways that we could, you know, make uh, the United States imaginative again or make these different countries imaginative again. There's many different directions we could go with that. In the United States, we have a lot of political challenges, you know, so the political situation is so extreme that, you know, that if, you know, a lot of these, if, if a lot of these initiatives would be discounted, you know, by political opponents. And so, so you kind of have to push that out of your mind. But I th and I think we need an imaginative, creative uh, revolution at every stage of education. But I'm particularly uh, focused on the ideas of the university because I think there's a lot that we can do. You know, I think there's a lot. Of, I think people, you know, in their teenage years, uh, like high schoolers, have amazing uh, and creative ideas. You know, for real solutions. I mean, you, you see these stories. This 15-year-old girl, this 16-year-old guy came up with this amazing plan and they're making it happen. So I don't think it's just reserved for the university level, but I think the universities are an institution that we have that should be focused on what kind of guidance and wisdom does our culture need now, not what are the commercial and corporate interests that we can, you know, um, contribute to with our, with our research and our, and our, and our facilities. So, and I think the imagination, uh, you know, challenge and crisis is a great spur to imagination, as, as we know. And I do think there needs to be a way, you know, I'm, I'm a real kind of imagination, you know, needs to be able to go in whatever direction it wants to go and that creativity should be uh, um, loose and free and unstructured. But I also think we have some real profound ecological and social challenges. So I don't think there's, uh, I, don't, I think it would be prudent to uh, challenge our creativity and our imagination and to marshal the brilliance and the genius of these emerging uh, up-and-coming up generations to say we got to figure out the ecological crisis. We need to come up with solutions for transition and powering down and what is our economy going to look like? What is our politics going to look like? What is in, what are energy and transportation sectors going to look like in the future? And so I think uh, we've got these massive challenges and we've got the, these massive transformations that, that need to happen in terms of uh, injustices around race, class, and gender, in terms of uh, preserving the biosphere and creating a really harmonious human-Earth relationship. And we've got these amazing young people and old, and old people and everyone in between who have this energy and this imagination and this creativity, you know, and we got to start merging these things. And so when Al Gore talked about how we need a Marshall Plan for the planet, you know, we need some kind of galvanizing um, collective action. Uh, and I think imagination, and, and so we have to mar marshal our imaginations. 
we have to galvanize our creativity and we have these these generations coming up with their brilliance and their genius and their energy and their insight and their perceptions that are going to be beyond you know what our generations have, have been able to perceive and so uh i do think that there's a way to activate creativity and imagination uh in a very loose and open uh ended way and also marshal our creativity and our imaginations in terms of creating ecological sustainability and social justice so we need new social and and uh, you know uh collective technologies for how to live on this planet and that's going to have everything to do with imagination and creativity i asked you before what if you had a particular poem of yours that you felt particularly uh spoke to that i don't know if you'd had a minute to have a th- is there anything that comes to mind sure yeah i've got i've got two that, that are really short really short so um this first poem is called revision open your eyes see visions imagine a melody infinitely listen a planet of stories with islands of silence a planet of stories with islands of silence her curved surface radiates grace milky way blazing in the sky above the city speaking in fractals the stars are telepathic wake the poets wake the dreamers cultivate the tendrils in the vineyard of your heart reorient our buildings to the solstice and from the center of the city see the stars and here's a here's another short one that uh speaks to uh seeing our creativity as part of the creativity of the cosmos so seeing our creativity as a cosmological dynamic and so this is called we make music We exist amidst the scattered shards of shattered stars. We exist amidst the scattered shards of shattered stars and we make music. We rock on this rock. We flow on this globe. We go from Muddy to Buddy, from Janice to Alanis, from Charlie Parker to Ali Farka, from Artie Shaw to Mardi Gras, from Madonna to Rihanna, from Raga to Gaga, from Ode to Joy to Soldier Boy. The earth was once lava and now sings opera. Our home is a poem. The planet is a sonnet. We exist amidst the scattered shards of shattered stars and we make music. Well, wow, thank you. Thank you so much. I know I interviewed Martin Shaw. Do you know Martin Shaw? Yeah, I've met him a couple of times. He talked about the difference between skin memory and flesh memory and bone memory. And the way he says skin memory is like the stuff you put on your CV. Your flesh memory is like the loves and losses of your life. And the bone memory is that, he says, it's like when you put a chick, a newborn chick in a box, and you fly over it the shadow of a um, pigeon, it doesn't do anything. And you fly over it the shape of a, shape of a hawk, and it goes, because it has that bone memory. And so for him, myth is the way that you tap into that. And I'm really interested in that question. Something I try and do when I talk about transition is to say, how can I talk about, how can I tell the tales of what's happening now and of what people are doing around the world and the, what the change makers are doing 
in 2018 in in their streets and in their parks and in their uh, in their community projects and how can I tell those stories of now in not in in a way so they haven't had like he talks about how myths have had thousands of years like pebbles in the river have been turned and turned and and uh, and the stories of now are the stories that, that we have they haven't been through that but I wonder what your thoughts are on how do we tell the stories about what's happening now how do we tell the stories about the fu- what the future that we could be creating now in such a way that it also accesses and and touches and tingles into that bone memory this is a good question I was about to say I don't know that I have a good answer for it but I, I would say that even if the stories are new the archetypes are old and so even in the newest story that's right off today's headline uh, that has nothing to do with myth or nothing to do with legend nothing to do with tradition there are archetypal elements uh, at work you know it could be the wise elder it could be the brash uh, the the brash hero, you know, on a journey. Um, but I, this is something that Thomas Berry, my teacher Thomas Berry, who was an American environmental writer and cosmological thinker, who died uh, in 2009 at 94 years old. But he was very interested in how do we use uh, how do we use um, some of these archetypal di- uh, dimensions, archetypal elements, to make. The, the the more recent stories come alive, like our new understanding of the of the story of the universe. Um, that's a very new understanding in terms of human history. It's only in the 20th century that these physicists and astronomers have kind of pieced together this new cosmological vision. So it's very old, very recent, you know, 125 years old or something like this. But but the archetype of the great journey is uh, is ancient. You know, and so Thomas Berry was saying we have this new information coming from science about the the, the, the universe as an unfolding process that's gone on for 13.7 billion years and has unfolded uh, through this sequence of transformations. That's all very new information, but the archetype of the great journey is an ancient archetype. So can we see the cosmos itself? Not can we see this new astronomical, uh, you know, data? From physics and science as not just a collection of uh, of, of data, but is you know, it, it, but is actually a narrative. We can see the cosmos as a journey. We can see it as a heroic quest. Even we can see sacrificial moments, such as when the supernova explodes and then seeds, uh, you know, all of the elements that will become our solar system. Uh, the great mother archetype, you know, this is again from kind of what Thomas Berry's beginning, beginning brainstorms of how some of these uh, archetypal themes and these mythic themes could be transposed onto our new understanding of the universe. So, you know, you think of the planet picture of the Earth from space. Um, that we didn't have until, you know, the, we didn't have a good one until the late 60s. Very new technology to get that photograph, but the archetype of the great mother is ancient. You know, that seems like a, a, that seems like a, a real uh, logical connection to me between the planet as a whole and being able to see that and to think about the archetype of the great mother. I don't know. Again, I'm not sure I have a great answer to your question, but I do think, and this was some of the ways that, um, you know, that I think uh, these religious traditions can reinvent themselves by discovering the archetypal and religious aspects of 
the uh, universe story as we know it through science. So it's that the science isn't enough on its own, perhaps, and the kind of archetypal mythic dimension might not be alone, uh, might not be enough on its own. But if we can merge the science with the the, the mythic, then I think we're getting into some places where you know we're we're gonna oh, some places of power, you know. And so I think we need, and, and I think we need both, you know. So I, I sometimes say we need to we need to. Uh, we need to act logically, but we also need to act mythologically. One of the things that, that uh, uh, I've been thinking a lot about recently is, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently or new studies coming out about how in Germany they've seen in the last 20 years a 75% decline in their insect populations during my lifetime since I was born. Um, half of the creatures that we share this planet with have, have disappeared you know when we when we live in a, a space where we see that diversity that kind of dazzling diversity uh, of Gaia disappearing how does that impact our imagination do you think what does it do to us well again Thomas Berry and also another uh, writer named Rene DeVoe. Uh, they both uh, had this idea that our, imagine, our inner world of imagination was obviously connected to the outer world uh, of nature. And uh, Rene DeVoe had this kind of image that, that Thomas Berry uh, picked up on and would use, uh, that if we lived on the moon, our imagination would be as barren as the moon. You know, and it's only the fact that we live in this world of color and sound and scent and movement that we live in the midst of an ecstatic celebration. I mean, that's what Thomas Berry called the universe. At one point he said, the universe is celebration. That was his one word synonym for the cosmos. The universe is celebration. It's an immense, multi-form, celebratory um, experience. And so I think that, that that's I think that's unquestionably true. You know that we are are the richness of the palette uh, that we paint with comes from the diversity and the richness of the planet Earth. And so I do think that there's a, a way in which uh, so when we're losing modes of divine presence, we're losing uh, we're losing uh, forms of the universe that stimulate our imagination and our creativity and that we have, you know, these soul connections with. It's not, again, it's not an instrumental thing like, oh, we need all of these different colors so that we can have the different colors. It's like we are drawn into existence and ecstasy and desire to share our creativity from this rapturous experience of being born into a cosmos, being born into a planet, being born into a society. So I think there's a, a clearly a diminishment that comes uh, as we lose species, as we lose the diversity uh, of this garden planet of the universe. Um, but I also think there's kind of an angst and a pain, you know, we kind of think in terms of eco-psychology um, and what are the connections between um, the destruction of the biosphere and the despair in our spirits. <laughs> and is that despair conducive uh, uh, to more creativity or is this kind of general malaise and despair and frustration 
you know, having having a dampening effect on our creativity. I don't know. Just my very last uh, thing was if if you had any last reflections or thoughts on imagination or anything we've talked about that I haven't asked you the right question to elicit. There's no aspect of our lives in which creativity is not essential. And whether that's social change, politics, economics, technology, um, the arts, education, medicine, you know, all of these things depend on creativity and imagination. And I think yeah, again, I've already said this, but I think if we move toward, I think what we're seeking is experiences of communication, compassion, creativity, connection, and celebration. And so, and when we realize that uh, that we could trade in these kind of the the false ecstasies of consumerism and capitalism for the true delights of celebration community connection and creativity you know we're gonna we're gonna find ourselves strongly pulled by that kind of future vision <laughs>